It's my joy to be with you guys today. Um, a lot of you may have never even seen me before um, it, because I see a lot of new faces. And we got how many new freshmen do we have here today? If you're a freshman and it's your first semester at HCC, raise your hand. Be proud. All right, there you go. So you, you've probably never even run into me before. So uh, my name's Steve Willis. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it's, it's not my primary place of ministry. I'm very thankful. Next week, actually, Adam's going to be talking about Jethro and, and delegation. And uh, I'm thankful that uh, we were able years ago to delegate the spiritual leadership of this congregation to uh, the bulk of it to Adam and Joe and to Bruce and just thankful for their partnership and commitment to the Word of God. Um, it, just partnerships like this, I think, are even more and more important as we go uh, because of just the theological dilution of uh, what the Bible says is important for a local church to be and to have and to do. We're seeing fewer and fewer churches actually embrace the full truth of God's Word, and more and more churches actually apostatize from the true teaching of what Christ has passed down to us. To, so to have partnering congregations that come together for the sake of missions, for the uh, sending of the gospel for the dedication of the word of God. That's just a, it's a blessing in my life. And I, and I thank these men for sharing that. And for our uh, original crew from Kanoa, there's probably still 30 or 40 uh, here in some fashion that were connected to First Baptist Kanoa when we first officially launched this uh, in 2009 or 10, something like that. I think it's been 10 years. So uh, just to see it here and in this facility, just uh, incredibly thankful for that. Um, I'm, I'm going to have you turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis 41. Just going to do every week at Kanoa. Uh, I'm kind of preaching this series. How many of you watch the uh, sit, I don't, it's not sitcom, I guess it's TV drama. Uh, this is Us. Anybody watch that other than, okay, it's like the number one TV drama. I'm not telling you you need to watch it. I'm not going to say it's going to enrich your spiritual life. It's entertainment. Um, but I've been kind of preaching this sermon like this is us. Like you, you see these backstories that help you understand the current story. Like if you just see the current story of what's going on, this, uh, this is us, it doesn't make nearly as much sense unless they do the flashbacks from when, you know, Jack was in Vietnam or something like that, okay? And so I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory today that's really going to kind of just explode the meaning of the Exodus passage uh, when we get to it. I know Adam's already done a lot of this. Uh, so let's start out here in Genesis uh, 41. It, you see a picture on the board. Is it up there? Go ahead and bring it up. Uh, this young man named Joseph, this is uh, 300, uh, 400 years before, uh, before Moses led the people out, uh, like what Adam talked about. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. He had some wicked brothers who were incredibly jealous of him. Uh, they didn't like the success that he was having. They didn't like that his father uh, favored him over the others so they sold him into slavery down in Egypt he went down there uh, eventually he ends up in prison it's a, it's a long story I'm doing a short part because I know Adam's done a lot of this background he ends up in prison but while he's in prison he interprets a couple of dreams for some men who are advisors or or uh, work for Pharaoh the most powerful man in the world at that time 
And when one of them gets out, they're in there and Pharaoh's having these dreams and he's like, I can't figure out why I keep having this recurring dream over and over. And then one of those officials said, hey, there's this guy in prison. I know this is kind of weird, but there's this guy in prison that can actually interpret dreams. He told me what my dream meant and how I would be standing next to you today. Uh, maybe we should call him. Okay. So that takes us to Genesis 41, 14. So then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream. And there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh and said, it is not in me. And man, this, I love this quote by him, all right? It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And what a blessing that is to see the humility of Joseph. It was the time for him to ring his bell, maybe get, this is his chance at the brass ring or whatever. But even in this moment, he says, man, I am just a worm. I'm only an instrument in the hand of God. So he reveals to Pharaoh who the true God of creation is, okay? And Joseph answers, uh, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And uh, so Pharaoh gives him the dream. And then Joseph tells him exactly what it means, okay? Uh, so there's something that's coming. There's this famine that's going to come on the whole world, but it's going to be preceded by seven years of plenty. So they're going to have all this grain rolling in for seven years. And he says, well, man, don't spend all your money. Don't spend everything. You need to save back 20% for what's coming next, this seven years of famine. And so what happened is because Egypt... Listen to Joseph and had that seven years. They banked 20% of whatever came in. Everybody had to write 20% of the government. And they didn't do like our government does now, which is spend into oblivion, all right? They put it back. And then so what happens next is the whole world, when the famine hits the whole world, everybody's got to come to Egypt. And now you're paying $10 for a loaf of bread. And Egypt is getting richer and richer. And they're gathering in all the money all the wealth from the nations of the world who didn't have the dream that Pharaoh had, who didn't have a Joseph to interpret that dream for them, okay? And so go ahead, 41.32, it says, And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring this about. Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, watch this, Since God, now watch that, Pharaoh realizes that God is at work here. The God who's in control of all those things. Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. So he becomes basically the vice president of the world at this point. And he oversees the gathering of that 20% and then the dispensing of that grain and just increasing the riches. And watch this. Egypt becomes the most powerful nation in the world, most powerful army in the world. They start building all these buildings, laying all these roads. Their, their fame becomes renowned all because of what Joseph did for them during this 14-year period. Do you follow that? Now, this is significant. Go ahead. There's a picture next where his brothers are, are caught up in that famine. They have to come back to you. I know Adam's already shared this story. They come fall before him, 
And his whole family, 70 of them, moved down to Egypt, and they start living there, and they're in the prime land, and Pharaoh's giving them blessing because of what Joseph's done. And if it, wasn't for, if, if it weren't for Joseph, then they wouldn't have anything. Pharaoh knows that, so he gives Joseph's family some prime real estate there in Egypt because that Pharaoh knew exactly what Joseph meant to the foundation of their country, which was everything. If it weren't for Joseph, we wouldn't be even alive. So you can imagine people coming to Pharaoh saying, why are you giving this prom land? Why are you deferring to this prom land to these Hebrew people? They're not Egyptians. They're not one of us. We're, we're separate peoples from them. Why are you giving them all this favor? Why do you consider them? And Pharaoh would tell them, it's because if it weren't for them, we wouldn't have anything right now. Now, over a hundred years go by, three generations, and that brings us to Exodus 1. You have this gap period there, and it says now there arose, and we, we know from history that the dynasties completely changed. The dynasty of Egypt left one family and went to another, and there arose a new king, a new dynasty over Egypt. King James says it, who knew not Joseph who did not know Joseph. This king was like, who's Joseph? This guy 100 years ago. What, what significance is he? And so during that time that nobody knew who Joseph was, no one worshipped uh, Egyptians, honored the God of the Hebrew people, that's when God calls Moses out of the desert. You know the story if you've been here thus far. He calls Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people out of slavery. They're going back to my promised land. Okay? Chapter 5, verse 1. It says, afterwards Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Jehovah. That's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's proper name of God. The God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Watch Pharaoh's response. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who is Jehovah? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now you see from the story what Adam's been teaching here is pretty soon Pharaoh knows exactly who God is. But this Pharaoh had forgotten from history all that Joseph had done. And ultimately, Joseph's point was, it's not that I did it, it's that God did it. But you're giving no glory to the one who gave you everything you have. You wouldn't even, there would be no Egypt if it weren't for the true God of the universe. And he's like, I don't even know who that guy is. So God reveals to him who he is. Through the, the disasters, the natural disasters that come on Egypt, and then eventually through wiping out that king's army. So that takes us to Exodus 15, where we left off last week. If you could turn there with me, please. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. All of Pharaoh's army has been wiped out. Now he knows who God is. And they went into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. 
Therefore, it was named Marah. That's what Marah means. It means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Now, here's what I want you to see. A lot of times we can just read right over this and miss the main point. Main point number one. Here it is. It took, we look at the Egyptians and say, man, what a bunch of ingrates. In just three generations, they forgot all that God had done for them. All it took for the Hebrew people after parting the Red Sea was three days. Took the Egyptians three generations. It only took the Hebrew people three days. They had just seen all the miracles of God. He had delivered them out of slavery. Wiped out the army that was pursuing them. Led them all along the way as a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by day. And within three days they were like, what are we, we going to do now? What's going to happen to us? Three days they had forgotten God's provision. Three days they were turning on the leader their modern day Joseph. Now don't miss that. How often can we do the same thing? How often has God provided for you and given you blessings? And then you're confronted with a situation and you've lived through it for one day, two days, three days, three weeks, three months, maybe even three years. And you're saying... Has God forgotten me? Does God care? Is it, God, are you going to do anything here? How often do we go into panic mode when things don't go our way right away? We stress out. And so this leads to application point number two. Watch this. Go ahead to verse 25. It says, And Moses cried to the Lord, Jehovah, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it in the water, and the water became sweet. And there the Lord made for them a statute and rule, and there he tested them. And he said, if you would diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ears to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh, your God. Now, I want you to look back, if you have your Bibles, let's go back, if you will, Chris, to verse 25. Here's my question I want you to observe. When exactly did Moses cry out to God? When exactly did Moses cry out to God? Now, what, now what's the answer to that? Look back in t verse 24, contrast it with 25. When did Moses cry out to God? Was it after day one of nothing to drink? And the answer to that is what? No. Was it after day two? Day two, no water. No crying out to God. Day three, no water. No crying out to God. When was it that finally Moses cried out to God and said, God, we need some water here? When? It was only when the people started complaining. Here's, a, here's what I want you to get for this. It wasn't because of the lack of water that caused Moses to cry out. It was only after those who were underneath his leaders started complaining about his leadership. Moses didn't cry, hadn't learned yet to cry out to God for the needs of his people. It was only when the people started turning on Moses that he cried out to God. 
Why didn't Moses just say, God, right away, I need some water here. We need some water here. So often, don't we do that? We see a need. Someone else has a need going on. Somebody has a problem in their life. Oh, that's okay. I'll pray for you. And you know, a lot of times, this is just what I've learned in my own life. When somebody comes to me as a pastor and says, will you, will you pray for me? I stop and I pray for them right now. You know why? Because once you walk away from me, if I don't write it down and it's not my problem and right here in front of my face all the time, I'll probably forget about it. How many of you that that's ever happened to you? Somebody says, oh, please pray for me. And then two weeks later, they've forgotten that you've got a problem. Or to flip that, you've done it to someone else. See, unfortunately, a lot of times it's when the problem comes back upon us is the first time that we'll actually pray earnestly. I mean, listen, when is the last time? Listen to what I'm about to say. We prayed for Columbia this morning, right? What, what nation did you pray for two months ago? I mean, a lot of times we don't remember who we prayed for last week. You know why? Because we're not crying out earnestly. But you know what? If you have a friend or a cousin that's in, let's say, Venezuela right now, you're praying all the time. Why? Because that country is in a world of mess. But if you don't know someone from Venezuela like I do, whose family is there and connected to our church, when the news about Venezuela comes on the news, you don't think anything about it. Well, that's a shame. What's for dinner? When do you cry out passionately to God for a problem that isn't directly affecting you yet? This is God teaching Moses what it means to have a heart for people and not just for what he's leading, for how people view him. I just wonder what would have happened if Moses would have cried out to God after day one. Why did Moses' people, the people under his leadership, why did they have to go through two more days of thirst? What if Moses would have cried out after day one, God, we need some water. And God would have said, well, just go over here, get this wood, throw it in there, they'll be able to drink it. But it wasn't until, listen, dads, leaders of this congregation, sometimes God will let your people under your leadership go through difficult times to the point that he will knock you to your knees so that you will actually cry out and show your dependence on him. And that's what God is doing. He says in these following verses, I'm testing you. I'm trying your faith. I'm training you to say it another way. Go ahead and verse uh, 25. So here he is. He's saying, I want you to learn from me. I want you to follow me. Uh, then down in verse 27, go ahead and go there, Chris. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So they went through a period of thirst, and then God provides. But God didn't fully provide until Moses learned what? To cry out. To cry out. Let, let me just try to save a lot of us a problem in this room. Cry out to God sooner than later. Don't go through three days of thirst if you don't have to. Cry out to God. He is Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals. He is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. But he is also the God who tests, who strengthens our faith 
muscles. And that's what we're going to see here in chapter 16, verse 1. Um, there, then they set out from Elam, the oasis. Everything's going great. Plenty of water, plenty of food. If you've never had Jerusalem area dates on our Israel mission trip, whoo, that food's so good. I could just go over there and eat Jerusalem dates all day, all right? They're so good. We, they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Shur. So here they go. They've gone from the oasis. Now they're back in the desert again. Why are they going back to the desert? What, what do you think God's going to do? He's going to test them again. This is how life worked. God gives you a break, then he gives you a test. Then he gives you an oasis, then he gives you a test. Then he gives you an oasis, then he gives you a test. Why is he doing this? He is teaching you something. And it is dependence on him. So here they are. And then on the 15th day of the second month, after they had departed from the land of Egypt, it's just been a few weeks since they've been gone. Here we are again. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For Moses, you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now do you see what the people are doing here? Yeah, when we were in Egypt, we had all this. When we were living our old life, we had it this way. And Moses got reminded, have you forgotten what slavery was like? Don't we do that just all the time? We, we just have this nostalgic idea about the past. Sometimes I'll, I'll hear people talk about junior high and their glory days in junior high football. Okay? Just like, yeah, I remember when we were eighth grade, we beat Huntington Middle. We had the team that year, right? Like, I... I remember middle school, like, I don't have nostalgia glasses on. You couldn't pay me. I hear people say, oh, I wish we could go back. Listen, you couldn't pay me enough money to go back to East Bank Junior High. All right? Adam grew up at East Bank Junior High just the same as I did. Okay? Unless you were the biggest, baddest guy, some of you might have been this guy. I'm Dustin, I bet you were this guy. Did you hit maturity? <laughs> did you hit maturity? I mean, you, I mean, you got all this facial hair and everything going on. When did you hit puberty and start getting, like, hair under your arms and stuff like that? 16? Oh, you were like me and Adam. No wonder you're a pastor now. That's how God breaks your heart. Okay? That's me. I was 16 too. I mean, it's the truth. Like, I walk in middle school locker room and I got all these men growing out muscles wherever, and I'm just, I'm standing over in a corner like this. Adam talks about how he just got picked on. Listen, if you weren't the biggest, baddest guy, you got beat up every day. All right? I mean, I was friends with Adam's brother. We used to beat up Adam every day, okay? <laughs> and you're just getting beat up all the time. And, you know, but sometimes we hearken back to the glory days of yesteryear. But listen, it wasn't so great. You couldn't pay me money to go back then. Would you want to go, where'd you go, Barbersville Middle School? Milton Middle, okay? Would you want to go back and live those days again? No, all right? If you want to go back to middle school and live those days again, I feel sorry for your life right now. <laughs> Forget those days. They're in the past. And this is what's happening with the people of Israel right now. They're just living in the past. You've always got to have a vision for the future, and God's trying to teach them, forget that, move forward. Verse 4, so then the Lord says to Moses, behold, he sees him complaining, 
All right. They didn't necessarily pass this test, but I know they've got to eat. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my law or not. Okay, so every day they're going to be tested because they've got to be dependent on God every day whether or not they're going to get this bread, okay? And uh, verse 5, on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily because God wants them to take a day off on the seventh day. So they get double the amount of bread on Friday, Saturday, they get the day off, okay? Uh, and the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and the, so they get meat for dinner at night, right? And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And this is what the Lord has commanded. It says, gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. All right, an omer is like a, a big pot full, okay? Um, and the people of Israel did so. They gathered, some more, some less. But when they measured it, with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them, watch this, keep, keep phrase here, each of them gathered as much as he could. Now, this bread that rained, rained down, what are they going to call that bread? It starts with the letter M, do you know? Manna. And literally the word manna in Hebrew means, what is it? Okay? That's kind of a funny thing to name your breakfast, like, what is this, all right? I mean, let me tell you guys, if you're dating a girl right now and she makes you dinner, all right, when she puts that plate in front of you, whatever you do, don't say manna if she's Hebrew, all right? Because you'll say, what is this, all right? And that's the reaction. God's giving them bread. They don't recognize what it is, and they're like, what is this? But let me tell you the blessing of God. He can rain down blessing on you even when you don't know where it's coming from. And God wanted to make them live every day in such a way that when they went to bed, we don't have any manna tonight. We don't have any, what is this tonight? And so every night, what did they have to pray? Dear God, when I wake up in the morning, I hope you got some of that manna for me. Man, this is a great lesson, this what is it, this blessing of God that you never see coming. I remember... Uh, when Dee and I first came to Canova, it was just over 20 years ago. And uh, we were young in our, in our 20s, and um, we, we got an email saying we were going to get paid a certain amount of money. And uh, somehow there was a miscommunication. But I didn't know that miscommunication until I bought our house that we live in now. And it was based on the email that I received. And we were going to be $250 a month short. So I've got two kids. We're 250 months short, and my wife uh, is a stay-at-home mom. I don't want her to have to go back to work. We're living in this house. My mortgage payment comes in. I can't pay it because I don't have the money to do it. So I go back to church. I said, hey, I had this email. And they were like, well, it's not in the budget. Sorry somebody sent you that email, but we're not going to pay you. I'm like, I go home. I'm like, we're going to go bankrupt. I'm going to be disqualified for ministry because one of the qualifications for ministry is you have to manage your own economy well. That's what it means household there. And I'm like, it's going to be a terrible witness. I don't want to call her parents and say, will you please bail me out? Because that's like the biggest loser in the world if you have to call your in-laws. Like my mom and dad, my dad had just been laid off uh, from what he was doing. I didn't know what to do. I come home on a Sunday night after the finance committee had just said, we don't have the money because Kenova was dead broke at the time. Uh, Joe Nancy lived through those days. You remember when the balance sheet was just 
paycheck to paycheck. And so uh, I came home, and I'm just pacing in the living room. I'm just going back and forth. And Dee said, what is wrong with you? I said, nothing. She says, you wouldn't be pacing if nothing was wrong with you. So I'm like, nothing. So she goes to bed. I come upstairs. I'm in bed. I'm just laying there staring at the ceiling. And she says, Steve, what's wrong? Tell me. I said, honey, I feel like the biggest loser in the world. But uh, we can't afford this house. I'm not going to ask you about the work, but I'm going to have to deliver pizzas in the evening or work at the Marshall Help Center. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just uh, I'm stuck. We're literally not going to be able to pay next month's house payment. And then my wife did something that you guys have been married any length of time. You, you, you hate when your wives do this. She, she said this little phrase, well, have you prayed about it? And I just remember looking at her, I'm like, you smart, like. <laughs> I'm like, well, God knows. She says, Steve, have you gotten down on your knees and asked him to provide for us? Because do you believe God called us here? Yeah, honey, I, I do. And she said, well, let's get down on our knees right now and let's just pray. How much do we need? I said, two fifty a month. 3000 on the year, that's where we're short. I said, and I was already running it too tight. We're going to be house poor anyway. She said, well, let's just pray for God to give us 3000 So we got down, and I prayed, dear God, just please, I need $3,000. I don't know how you're going to give this to me, but just please give me $3,000. And then she prayed, and we started to get up. And I said, no, no, wait a minute, let's get back down. And if any of you know me, this isn't going to surprise you at all. I said, God, I know I asked for $3,000. But it was already so tight. Can I just ask for $5,000? <laughs> you own the cattle on a thousand hills. Lord, I need $5,000. And I'd like to have it this week. I don't know how you're going to do it. <laughs> and she, like, opened her eyes in the middle of prayer and just looked at me. And uh, so, you know what? God gave me a piece at that moment. And I just laid down. I said, we're going to get $5,000. And she said, uh. She says, well, you know, as long as the Lord will provide, I trust that he will. Next day, I'm down at Canova. I'm in the office where Mackie Gaskin serves now. She calls me about 11, 12 o'clock. She says, I need you to come home right now. I thought something was wrong with the kids. She's crying. Come home right now. I go up to the house. I drive up there as quickly as I can, get the hill, walk to the front door. She says, look at that card on the table. Just came in the mail. And I, and I got it, and I looked at it, and it said, Dear Stephen D., God put you on our heart last Tuesday. And we just felt like that we needed help you. It was from a couple in Dallas, Texas that we hadn't spoken with in four years. They were part of our youth team in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I looked at a car. I'm like, what did they send us? And she gave me the check. And guess what it was made out for? $5,000. Listen, God had already had them write that check before I even prayed. Why? Because he knew when I was going to pray. But he had to get that finance committee to knock me down on my knees so that I would cry out to God, help me. How many times do we go, how much does God have for us in heaven that he's just waiting to give us? It's right there. It's in our name. It's in your name. You just had not asked for it yet. You haven't cried out. You haven't reached the point of desperation where you're saying, God, I am totally dependent on you. Now, here, here's, the, here's where you got to watch this, okay? Verse 19, okay? I don't want to sound like I'm Benny Hinn prosperity guy. Watch, there's a balance, okay? Moses said to them, 
Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. Okay? Don't go get, go, don't gather more than you need. Don't be a hoarder. Just live on what you need to on a daily basis. Okay? Verse 26. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms, and it stank. And Moses was angry with them. And so he goes out, and he's got to give them the talk. He said, six days, I told you, six days you'll gather this bread. But on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there won't be any. And on the se seventh day, some of the people went out to gather. They went out to work on the Lord's day. They were skipping worship time, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place and let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So then the people learned a lesson finally, but God had to starve them first. The people rested on the seventh day. Man, there's a good principle here that carries over to today as well. I don't want to get legalistic throwing the capital L law on you, but God has given a principle of gather what you need. Don't work extra on Sunday to make up for God giving you every day. They wanted to hoard. They want to put back. They wanted to take more than what they needed. And listen, when you see other people need and you're trying to, God gave them enough for the people as a whole. He didn't give them enough so that this group of people could have a million bucks and this group over here didn't get any. This is a team effort among the people of God. And I want to challenge you with something. Whenever a society, listen, whenever society, forgive me, I'm picking on you guys like you're the bad rich people, okay? But watch. Whenever society really starts getting after, we've got to have more and more and more and more, and you're not concerned or crying out for the people over here who have less and less and less and less, it's going to turn into worms and it's going to stink. And then what's happened is when you're not making as much money as you think you wish you had, then you're going to start working on the Lord's Day. And you're going to start prioritizing the things of the world over the things of God. That's what that one day out of seven does. It teaches us to rest and to put God first above all things, to give him our first fruits, to give him our best, and also to consider the needs of the others. And so Moses, again, he is testing them, and they don't get it. That takes us to chapter 17. Now, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But, surprise, surprise, what's God going to do? He provided for them. Now, there's no water to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses. Before, they were just complaining. This word for quarreled is like the word for wanting to overthrow. This is a coup d'etat. They're ready to kill Moses. We're tired of this up and down and up and down and up and down. And they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Jehovah, the God who provides for you? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord. Notice again, when does Moses cry to the Lord? Only after things have turned bad. 
He says, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And this is just a flat-out miracle. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? He, notice he didn't name the place the place where water flowed. They remembered it because of the conflict, not because of the provision. And they totally missed the point that God was trying to get to them. And this is what's going to happen. You're going to see it here in a few weeks. God's going to test and test and test. They're going to fail and fail and fail and fail. And eventually, it's going to take them 40 years to learn a lesson. I want to close with you with just a couple of thoughts. Um, the first one is this. Um, whenever we read, Adam does a great job of this. He does a better job than I do. Um, whenever we read the Old Testament stories, we always have to graft in, what does this have to do with Jesus? And in this case, it's easy. Like, I'm, I'm not going to miss this one because it's too easy. Okay? Uh, what does it have to do with Jesus? Uh, go, guys, go ahead and go to uh, John 7, 37. Okay? They're having a big feast in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. This is a softball. You can't miss this one. And Jesus stood up and cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, he interprets this for us. We don't have to figure it out. It says, he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this is what Jesus is saying. That living water that you see there in the Old Testament, that if you come to God, you'll never thirst physically. Jesus is saying, if you come to me, you'll never thirst spiritually. Not only that, here's, here's the great news. When you've got the Holy Spirit in your life, not only do you have the water you need, but what's, what does it start doing? It starts overflowing. It comes out of you. I know uh, Dustin has done some evangelism training stuff here with you all, trying to train you to share your faith. Adam's done some well, the, uh, the leaders of the, the congregation here. Um, Dustin, what's the hardest thing when it comes to training people to share their faith? We haven't discussed this ahead of time. I don't know what he's going to say. What's the hardest thing? What's the most frustrating thing? That, that's what it is. It's just getting people to get over their fears so they will actually go and share their faith, be motivated to do it. It's, listen, if you know enough to come to Jesus, then you know enough of the gospel to lead somebody to Jesus. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to say that again. If you know enough of the gospel to come to Jesus, then you know enough of the gospel to lead somebody else to Jesus. 
People say, man, i got to go through 10 weeks of training. How did you get saved? Did somebody train you for 10 weeks? If you know enough of the gospel to come to Jesus, you know someone that will lead somebody. It's not that you don't know enough to share the gospel with anybody. Oh, I'm scared they're going to ask me a question I don't know. Well, people still ask me questions I don't know. I've been to 16 years of postgraduate education. I still get stuck sometimes. That's not the problem. The problem is, man, listen, I've known people who don't know the word all that well, but they just gush with the Holy Spirit, and they're bringing people all the time. Do you see that all the time, Dustin? People new to the faith just got baptized, and all of a sudden they bring three friends. And then you got people that have been Christians since they were three, all right? And they never bring anybody. And this is what Jesus says, man, when you got me, it's just going to pour out of you. Just come to me and I'll give you me. And it'll just explode. Now, Exodus 16, 4, watch this. The Lord said to Moses, behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out every day and gather the portion. Here's the bread, okay? Look at John 6, 28. Just flip back a chapter. Jesus makes it easy. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? I love this. What good thing must we do? How can we earn our salvation? And Jesus throws it right back at him. He says, this is the work of God. I love it. That you believe in the one whom he has sent. You don't have to work it. You just have to believe it. So they said to him, well, what sign will you do that we may see and believe you? What work will you do and perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. All right, Moses gave us a sign to show us that he was God's man. What are you going to give us? Watch Jesus. This is awesome. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, whenever you see truly, truly, that was their way of saying, you're not going to believe this, but it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gave you true bread from heaven. And it gets better. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, well, give us this bread always. Oh, here it is, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. And Jesus said to them, I am the manna. I am the gift that you've been praying for, and you didn't see it coming. I am the bread that's come down from heaven. And if you come to me, unlike the people that had to wake up every morning and just hope the bread was there, if you come to me, you'll never be hungry again. And whoever believes in me will never thirst man isn't that great news jesus is the bread of life he is the water for your desert never forget that all these stories point to a dependence and that's what was happening in the wilderness and the law it was teaching people over and over you need to be dependent you need to cry out to god you need to pass the test but here's the deal every time they failed the test and but here's the good news Here's the gospel. God knows that every time you're going to fail the test too. Some of you have been thinking in here, man, I've got to be better. I've got to work harder. I'm going, to, I'm going to do more. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus said, I'm not sending you out to reward more. I'm sending you to come to me. Cry out to me. I'm going to close with this thought. Okay? This is audience participation time. I want all of you to think right now, and I want you to go right to your heart. The answer that comes to your heart. 
Why do you love Jesus? Boom. Hopefully that came quickly. Okay? Give me some answers. Why do you love Jesus? I promise you it's not a trick question. I'm not setting you up. Okay? Give me somebody. Why do you love Jesus? Raise a hand. Okay? Nate? Because he saved you. Saved you from what? Okay? Come on up here. Come on up front. Now nobody's going to raise their hand and answer. All right? Okay? All right, Nate, I want you to stand over here. He saved you. Somebody else. Right there. You raise your hand. Because he first loved you. Come on, come on up here. Give me somebody else. Why do you love Jesus? You deserve death, but you love Jesus because he took your place. Come over here and step by Nate. Okay? You, you stay there. You're in a good spot. Somebody else. Why do you love Jesus? First thing. Even if you thought the same thing, it's okay. All right? Over there. Kiki. Because he loved Come on. Come on. Come on. You, you can join in the front. Somebody else. Why do you love Jesus? Just what came to your heart? Nobody else loves Jesus in the room. We just, okay. Saved you from your sin. All right, you're, you come up here with, with these folks. Give me another reason why you love Jesus. Right here. He's the son of God. Yeah, come up here. Yeah. Y'all are making this harder than what it needs to be. Another reason why we love Jesus. Give me another reason. Yeah. He did what you could not do. Come on over here. You're going to stand over here with these guys. All right. Give me another one. Give me another reason why you love Jesus. Why do you love Jesus? He cares for you. Come on, come on up. How do you know he cares for you? Keep coming. You can tell us as you come. Amen. All right. Now, now that's, aren't y'all encouraged by that? Somebody else encouraged somebody that. I just like how she said it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I want you to say that again. All right. Somebody else. Yeah, back there. He made peace for you with God. Come on, you're going to stand over on this side. Okay, somebody else raise your hand. Encourage somebody. Yeah. He's always faithful. Even when what? What do you mean by that? Finish the sentence. Even when? Even when we're not. Come on over here. Okay? Now, I can keep going and going and going. Do you, do you ever, like, when you're sharing your faith, this is what I find. A lot of times people say, man, I have a hard time believing that God is good if he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing. Because there's all this bad stuff that happens in the world. Like disease, sickness, kids getting cancer, stuff that just hits me in my life, just right in the face. Like, wh why did a good God, people ask the question, what, have you ever thought this? Why did God ever create the devil in the first place? I mean, didn't he know when he created Lucifer that what was going to happen? I mean, if he's all-knowing, he creates Lucifer someday. Everybody's looking, man, what a beautiful angel in the back of God's mind. He's thinking what? He's going to cause trouble. But yet he created him anyway. Yet you ever, am I the only one that thinks questions like this? You have, right? Like, why does God allow this to happen in my life? Why does God allow suffering? Here's what I want you to see. Everything that they mentioned about Jesus, you could have known about Jesus without sin and suffering entering the world. Do you see that? But the number one reasons that most of you give why you love Jesus is because sin and suffering entered the world. And this, you're like, well, man, is that worth it, though? I mean, look at all the troubles that come on earth. Is it, why would God do that, put all the troubles that we have on this earth just so we could get to know Jesus better? And here's the thing. If you accept the concept that 
life is all about human beings being happy, then you're going to have a problem with that idea. Okay? But if you accept, like the Westminster Confession, we, we, we got the picture on the board, all right? The Westminster Confession, who knows, like, number one, what is the chief end of man? Anybody know? What is the chief end of man? It's to do what? To glorify God and what? And enjoy Him forever, all right? The way God brings about His glory is through suffering. And this is what he said. Do I have the verse there about where he says to, to Pharaoh about this is how I'm going to show my glory? Do I have that there? I'm not looking at my notes. If I don't have it, I'll just say it, okay? God says to Moses, I'm going to wipe out Pharaoh, and then all G Egypt will know that I'm God, and I will be glorified. Now, if it's just about happy, happy, joy, joy, that's not a very good God. But if God's primary interest is to glorify himself and for us to know him and his attributes. Listen, without sin entering the world, without suffering in the world, there are a million aspects of Jesus that we could have never worshipped him for. You get that? So here's what I want you to understand. Band, you guys can come on up. Thank you, guys. Thank you for your testimonies. Those were important. Here, here, here's what I want to share with you as they come up. Last Sunday night, um, we had a new member join the church, a couple new families. Uh, guy from Out Wayne, he was a youth pastor. His name was Zach Bockins. I don't know if any of you know Zach. You guys probably know who Zach Bockins is and Ron Wellman, okay? Um, Zach was sharing a testimony how he was up here playing ball up here at Marshall while he was a youth pastor. And that weekend, they had a big youth retreat concert, Christian concert, they were taking a youth group to in Lexington. While he's playing ball, boom, he ruptures his Achilles, and he's laying there in pain, crying out. He doesn't have money to, you know, he's got to pay bills. He's sitting there, he's hurting. They got this big youth retreat going on with dozens of kids going that weekend. And he's crying, holding his ankle there and his Achilles. And they take him and they put him in the boot and whatever. And they say, you're not going to be able to drive. Well, he didn't have enough volunteers to take all the kids to Lexington. So he called his friend, Ron Wellman, who wasn't a believer. He said, man, I'm in a bind. Can you drive a minivan of kids with me and I'll ride along with you to this concert just for this weekend because I can't drive. I got this boot on my leg. And he said, sure, man, I'll help you out. So they ride together, Lexington. They're, they're talking about sports and football and everything. They get there to the concert and their tickets, they get them there and they got there late and they're up in the nosebleeds of Rupp Arena. And he can't get up there with the boot. And so he says, man, I'm just going to have to sit down here in the handicap section down near the front, and the guy Ryan says, man, if you've got enough leaders to sit up there, I'll, just, I'll help you down front. So he goes down front, right from the stage. This guy who's not a believer, they're sharing the concert. He's just kind of sitting there. Zach's sitting there. But then in the middle of the concert, a guy comes out and preaches the gospel. Ron Wellman gets saved right there, accepts Jesus. Then he goes out and finds a godly wife, and now he's raising godly kids. Working with young adults and, and teenagers and both of them working together and they've led a bunch of other people to Christ. Listen to what I'm about to say. This will change your life. Listen. What if Zach, while he was sitting there in that gym, complaining and having all this self-pity party for, because of his leg, what if he thought when he ruptured at Achilles, man... How's God going to use this for his glory? I want to challenge you that. 
Every time pain and suffering comes your way, don't look at it as an obstacle. Look at it as an opportunity by which God is going to use it to show you His glory. Just, just no matter what comes your direction, just say, man, you know what? I know God's going to be glorified in this because this is what God does through suffering. He teaches us to remain dependent upon Him. And that's not even going to change. You know, you hear about in the book of Revelation, New Heaven, New Earth, when, when we're going to go to heaven and we're going to sit there and say, man, we're never going to need anything ever again. We're going to be in the best. You are going to need something when you go to heaven. You know what it is? Revelation 22. Go ahead and bring that up there. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Last chapter in the Bible. And through the middle of the street, or the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, there was a tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healings of the nations. Why? Watch this, watch. Why is God going to have a tree in the new heaven by which everybody in the world has got to come back there once a month? Why? Why did God give Adam everything in the garden, the tree of life in the garden? Why did God give it to him? To remind him what? You are always going to be dependent on me. It's not going to end when we go to heaven. That tree bearing fruit every month is always going to be there to remind people of all times. You are always dependent on me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, help us to change our mindset. What if, instead of stressing out about our future during times of difficulties, what if we get excited when that desert moment hits and instead we wonder how is God going to be glorified through this situation? How is God going to become a lot more personal to me because of what I'm going through right now? Father, if there's ever been a generation of Americans that has struggled more with stress and anxiety, it, it's this one. We struggle with our thoughts and fears about the future. But whenever you send troubles our way, you are teaching us to fall to our knees and cry out to the provider of the manna from heaven. The water that springs forth from the Spirit of God to quench our thirst, to satisfy our hunger. And that thirst and that hunger can only be satisfied through you. Lord, you've shown us in the past that you will always provide. You've gotten us through one failure after another. And if we just keep coming, of life to Jesus, we know that we'll do it again. We pray this in Christ's name.